St. Petersburg, Florida, May 31, 1917. Dear Sir, Please inform me of the best place in the North for the colored people of the South. I am coming North and I want to know of a good town to stop in. I enclose stamp for reply. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Over the next three episodes, we are listening to the words of Americans who participated in and witnessed the Great Migration. This first episode will describe life in the South, the life that so many African Americans wanted to escape. The second episode will focus on conditions and other factors that made the movement possible. I'll also discuss the reactions of Southern whites and blacks to the migration. In part three, we'll discuss life for the migrants after they moved. This series will feature over 20 letters that were printed in the Journal of Negro History. All of the names in those letters have been redacted. We also have one letter read with permission from the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library, which we'll get to in Episode 3. Please be aware that some of the information may be disturbing to younger or sensitive listeners. Being a pretty sensitive listener myself, I have left out the most graphic details, but many details from this period are in fact disturbing. I hope I've achieved a good balance of being informative while still suitable for most children to listen to. The N-word was also used in some of the letters and quotations. I have included the following sound in those places because I felt it was important for us to hear when it was said, even if I'm not going to say it myself. And so now, let's start with a few numbers to help appreciate the scale of the movement. Between 1915 and 1970, six million African Americans moved from the southern United States to cities in the Northeast, Midwest, and Western states. At the start, 90% of America's 10 million African Americans lived in the South. By the time the exodus ended, as the civil rights era closed, the black population had doubled to 20 million, but now only half lived in the South. 400 to 500,000 African Americans migrated between 1915 and 1919, one million during the 1920s. The movements that took place during this era made a lasting impression on American cities, one that is visible to this day. The movements generally followed rail lines so that black Americans from Florida, South Carolina, Virginia, and Georgia often moved to New England, New Jersey, and New York. Between 1910 and 1920, the black population of New York rose from about 90,000 to over 150,000. Among those migrants were the poets, novelists, musicians, dramatists, and other artists whose works are celebrated collectively as the Harlem Renaissance, which continued until the mid-1930s. Those who wanted to escape Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, and Louisiana often fled to Indiana, Michigan, and Illinois. Between 1916 and 1919, Chicago's black population increased by 50 to 70,000 African Americans. They were drawn to the images of the black Mecca that were portrayed in the pages of the Chicago Defender, a black newspaper sold and shared throughout the South. 
Black Americans also made their way to other big cities like Detroit, Pittsburgh, and Los Angeles, as well as Syracuse, Milwaukee, Newark, and Gary, Indiana. Historians often divide the migration into two waves, the first happening between 1915 and 1940, and the second from 1942 to 1970. This podcast series is going to focus more on the first migration, particularly the years 1916 and 1917, from which hundreds of letters were printed in the Chicago Defender. I highly recommend the book, The Warmth of Other Suns, an expansive and meticulous account of the Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson, which focuses on the second part. In her book, Wilkerson draws a parallel between those who crossed the Mason-Dixon line and the millions who have crossed the Atlantic and the Rio Grande in search of their American dream. The next few letters illustrate the desperation felt by many Southern Blacks, regardless of gender, age, or education level. New Orleans, Louisiana, June 10, 1917. Kind Sir, I read and hear daily of the great chance that a colored person has in Chicago of making a living with all the privilege that the whites have, and it makes me the most anxious to want to go there where I may be able to make a living for myself. When you read this, you will think it very strange that being only myself to support that it is so hard, but it is so. Everything has gone up but the poor colored people's wages. I have made several efforts to leave and come to Chicago, where I hear that times are good for us, but owing to female weakness has made it a perfect failure. I am a widow for nine years. I have very poor learning, although it would not make much difference if I would be thoroughly educated, for I could not get any better work to do, such as housework, washing, and ironing, and all such work that are injuring to a woman with female weakness. And they pay so little for so hard work that it is just enough to pay room rent and a little something to eat. I have found a very good remedy that I really feel to believe would cure me if I could only make enough money to keep up my medicine. And I don't think I will ever be able to do that down here, for the time is getting worse every day. I'm going to ask if you people here could aid me in getting over here in Chicago and seeking out a position of some kind. I can also do plain sewing. Please, good people, don't refuse to help me out in my trouble, for I am in great need of help. God will bless you. I am going to do my very best after I get over here. If God spares me to get work, I will pay the expense back. Do try to do the best you can for me. With many thanks for so doing, I will remain as ever, yours truly. Macon, Georgia, April 1st, 1917. Dear Sir, I am writing you for information. I want to come northeast, but I have not sufficient funds, and I am writing you to see if there is any way that you can help me by giving me the names of some of the firms that will send me transportation, as we are down here where we have to be shot down here like rabbits for every little offense. As I have seen an occurrence happen down here this afternoon, when three deputies from the sheriff's office and one Negro spotter come out and found some of our race men in a crap game. And it makes me want to leave the South worse than I ever did when such things happen right at my door. Hoping to have a reply soon, and I will enclose a stamp. Selma, Alabama, May 19, 1917. 
Dear Sir, I am a reader of the Chicago Defender. I think it is one of the most wonderful papers of our race printed. Sirs, I am writing to see if you all will please get me a job. And sir, I can wash dishes, wash, iron, nursing, work in groceries and dry goods stores. Just any of these I can do. Sir, whosoever you get the job from, please tell them to send me a ticket and I will pay them when I get there, as I have not got enough money to pay my way. I am a girl of 17 years old and in the 8th grade at Knox Academy School. But on account of not having enough money, I had to stop school. Sir, I will thank you with all my heart. May God bless you all. Please answer in return mail. The letters alluded to some of the push factors, the conditions in the South that compelled so many African Americans to move, including lack of economic opportunity and racial violence. It's probably useful to back up just a little bit to the end of the Civil War and review quickly what happens between emancipation and the mass exodus. I did a fair amount of re research on Reconstruction and included a lot of it in my notes for this episode. Then I took a lot of it out, and then I put some back. I realized that I probably just need to do a Reconstruction episode at some point, but I still want to mention it here, so here's your 10-minute Reconstruction. Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia on April 9, 1865. Over the next few years, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were ratified. They're also known as the Reconstruction Amendments. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th defined citizenship, granting it to individuals born in the United States, so that included all of the formerly enslaved. Among other things, it also required due process and guaranteed equal protection under the law to all citizens. And the 15th Amendment gave black men the right to vote. Officially, quote, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So with the war over, you have 4 million African Americans, a group that for generations has been stripped of self-determination, forbidden to learn to read or write, though a few did manage to, and also 9 million whites, and the whole Southern way of life has basically been decimated. The Freedmen's Bureau was established before the end of the war to assist the formerly enslaved with food, housing, health care, and education. One triumph of this era is that 3,000 schools, mostly funded by missionaries and local black communities, served 150,000 students. The Bureau also supervised employment contracts between the formerly enslaved and private landowners. And the agency was authorized to divide confiscated lands and give up to 40 acres each to freedmen and black war refugees for a period of three years at a low rent, after which they would be able to purchase the land. But President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated on April 14th, just a few days after Lee's surrender. Before his death, Lincoln had posed his 10% plan. Under it, all Southerners, except Confederate leaders, would be accepted back into the Union if they supported emancipation and took an oath affirming loyalty to the Union. When 10% of citizens eligible to vote in 1860, so not slaves, had taken the oath, the state could form a new government. 
Lincoln had pocket-vetoed a bill that would require a majority in each Confederate state to swear that they had never voluntarily supported the Confederacy before they could be readmitted to the Union. But at the end of May, the new president, Andrew Johnson, announced his approach to Reconstruction. He immediately pardoned all Southern whites except Confederate leaders and the wealthiest planters. Those not given immediate amnesty could apply for pardons, which Johnson freely gave. Confiscated lands were returned to their pre-war owners, and some of the provisional governors that Johnson appointed were actually former Confederate leaders. He vetoed a Freedmen's Bill from the Senate that would empower military governors to enforce provisions to protect African Americans. He also opposed a Civil Rights Act, which gave black citizenship and equal protection, as the 14th Amendment would eventually do. The 14th Amendment was actually passed over Johnson's veto. Throughout the South, states passed laws meant to basically force the freed blacks back onto plantations. Black codes had existed in the North and South prior to the war, and even though Congress would eventually invalidate the black codes, they helped demonstrate the mindset of many Southerners after the war. And so I'll read a few examples. In South Carolina, a black man doing any work except farmer or servant had to apply for a license from a judge and pay an annual tax of 10 to to $100. In North Carolina, orphans had to work for their former masters, even if their grandparents or other relatives were alive. In Louisiana, each black family had to sign a contract within the first 10 days of the year committing that family to work on a plantation. In Florida, all contracts had to be approved by a white person. The Vagrancy Code from Mississippi read as follows, that all freedmen, free Negroes, and mulattoes in this state over the age of 18 years found on the second Monday in January, 1866 or thereafter, without lawful employment or business, or found unlawfully assembling themselves together, either in the day or nighttime, and all white persons so assembling themselves with freedmen, free Negroes or mulattoes, or usually associating with freedmen, free Negroes or mulattoes, on terms of equality, or living in adultery or fornication with a freed woman, free Negro or mulatto, shall be deemed vagrants, and on conviction thereof shall be fined in a sum not exceeding, in the case of a freedman, free Negro or mulatto, $50, and a white man, $200, and imprisoned, at the discretion of the court, that free Negro not exceeding 10 days, and the white man not exceeding 6 months. In the 1866 congressional elections, Republicans won two-thirds majorities in both houses, allowing them to take over Reconstruction from President Johnson. The following year, it passed a bill that imposed certain requirements before Confederate states could be readmitted to the Union. Except for Tennessee, which had already been readmitted, the area that had been the Confederacy was divided into five military districts. To get back into the Union, states had to write new constitutions and they had to be approved by the majority of voters, including African Americans. They also had to ratify the 13th and 14th Amendments. With these new requirements in place, African Americans were elected to state legislatures throughout the South. The new constitutions codified women's rights and provided for state-funded schools. When Mississippi was readmitted in February of 1870, Hiram Revels became the first African-American to sit in the Senate. In December of that year, 
Joseph Rainey of South Carolina became the first African-American to sit in the House. In 1875, Mississippi elected the only former slave to ever serve in the Senate, Blanche K. Bruce. In all, over 600 African-Americans would sit in state legislatures and hundreds more served as sheriffs, justices of the peace, and other local officers. And a total of 16 served in the United States Congress. And there was some social progress as well. For a time, blacks and whites drank at the same bar in some Mississippi saloons and at the same soda fountains in South Carolina and served on juries in Virginia. Eventually, however, internal divisions in the Republican Party and Northern apathy or ambivalence about the government's role in reconstructing the South led to the end of federal oversight. The Ku Klux Klan and other groups had begun terrorizing blacks and white Republicans. Night riders in white hoods rode through black neighborhoods, claiming to be the risen spirits of slain Confederate soldiers. Through violence, intimidation, and other schemes, such as poll taxes and literacy tests, blacks were prevented from voting. And with blacks unable to vote, Democratic Redeemer governments were able to wrest control of Southern legislatures. By 1877, all Southern state legislatures were in Democratic hands. As I said already, Reconstruction could and probably will be its own episode. But the super short version is, some things changed for blacks in the South, but many things did not. In 1896, in the case of Homer Plessy versus John Ferguson, the Supreme Court ruled that the 14th Amendment did not prohibit segregation on the basis of race as long as the separate facilities were equal, and they were not equal. As the lone dissent on this ruling, John Marshall Harlan wrote, quote, The Constitution is colorblind, and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or of his color when his civil rights, as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land, are involved. He concluded that, quote, In my opinion, the judgment this day rendered will, in time, prove to be quite as pernicious as the decision made by this tribunal in the Dred Scott case. In that case, the court had ruled that African Americans were not entitled to the rights of U.S. citizenship. Segregation laws proliferated in the North and South, mandating that schools, street and rail cars, restaurants, libraries, theaters, parks, hospital wards, prisons, and cemeteries be segregated. Segregated schools were often housed in shoddy buildings that lacked proper equipment, lighting, or sanitation. Many teachers were untrained, but had been given teaching certificates merely because a black teacher was needed for the segregated school. While black and white tax dollars went to the state, black schools received a fraction of the state funding. The books given to black students were often outdated texts handed down from the white schools. The next letter gives us a small idea of the state of segregated education. Lexington, Mississippi, May 12, 1917. My dear Mr. H., I am writing to you for some information and assistance, if you can give it. I am a young man and am disabled, in a very great degree, to do hard manual labor. I was educated at Alcorn College and have been teaching a few years. But, ah, me... The superintendent under whom we poor colored teachers have to teach cares less for a colored man than he does for the vilest beast. 
I am compelled to teach 150 children without any assistance and receive only $27 a month, while the white, with 30, get $100. I am so sick, I am so tired of such conditions, that I sometimes think that life for me is not worthwhile, and most eminently believe with Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. If I was a strong, able-bodied man, I would have gone from here long ago, but this handicaps me, and I must make inquiries before I leap. Mr. H., do you think you can assist me to a position? I am good at stenography, typewriting, and bookkeeping, or any kind of work not too rough or heavy. I am four feet six inches high and weigh 105 pounds. I will gladly give any other information you may desire and will greatly appreciate any assistance you may render me. Activist and scholar W.E.B. Du Bois described the experience with Jim Crow transportation and described the Jim Crow car as, quote, caked with dirt, the floor is gummy and the windows dirty. The conductor gruffly asks for your tickets. Lunch rooms either don't serve or serve them at some dirty and ill-attended hole in the wall. Toilet rooms are often filthy. In another affront to the 14th Amendment, the legal system in the South did not give blacks equal protection. In his 1919 report on the causes of the African-American migration, journalist Emmett J. Scott cited blacks' treatment by the legal system. He wrote that blacks could rarely expect to receive justice unless they had the help of an influential white friend. White citizens were rarely punished for assaulting or even killing blacks. But if a black man killed a white man, even in self-defense, his own death was certain. The testimony of a black person against a white person was not considered in any proceedings, but a white man's testimony, conclusive. Nor could a black woman accusing a white man of rape expect to receive any justice. South Carolina Governor Cole Blees doubted that it was even possible to rape a black woman since, in his words, quote, adultery seems to be their most favorite pastime. If accused of a crime, petty or serious, fairly or falsely, African Americans could be condemned to years in hard labor in the convict lease system. It was another form of slavery, and it was allowed by the 13th Amendment. It reads, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The key words here are, except as punishment for a crime. The punishment for the crime of stealing a cow could be five years in prison, while whites might get two years for the same. For burglary, as much as 12 to 40 years for a black person, compared to five for whites. During the 40 years that Georgia had a convict lease system, of the over 2,000 prisoners who went through it, 90% were black men. States and counties would lease prisoners out to plantations, factories, mines, and railroads. The men in the camps would work from six to seven days per week, from before dawn until after dark, or, as one prisoner put it, from can't see to can't see. Their jobs included building railroads, gathering turpentine, cutting timber, digging coal, clearing snake and alligator swamps, and picking cotton. They would sometimes be chained together, knee-deep in muck, with no access to clean drinking water or place to relieve themselves. They ate and slept on the bare ground without mattresses or blankets, sometimes without clothes. 
a New Orleans man, described the terror of the system in 1879. They call these people county convicts, and if you've got a farm, you can hire them out of the jail. They've got that system, and the colored men object to it. I know some of these men who have state convicts that they hire, and they work them under shotguns. A farmer hires so many out of the state, and they are under the supervision of a sergeant with a gun and hounds to run them if they get away. They hire them and put them in the same gang with the striped suit on, and if they want, the guard can bring them down with his shotgun. Then they have these hounds, and if one of them gets off and they can't find him, they take the hounds, and from a shoe or anything of the kind belonging to the convict, they trail him down. Convicts suffered and died from beatings, malaria, scurvy, dysentery, frostbite, sunstroke, and torture. Labor camp deaths actually surpassed lynching deaths by a factor of 10, and the death rate in some camps was as high as 45%. Then the men would be buried in secret graveyards. Women were not spared this form of punishment. Though in smaller numbers, women were sent to labor camps, sometimes doing the same work as men, or in other cases, being expected to perform domestic duties like laundry and cooking for the male prisoners. And white women could be sent to convict camps for the crime of committing adultery with a black man. Even children were sent to the camps for misdemeanors and received sentences of up to 20 years for minor crimes. 12-year-old Cy Williams received such a sentence for stealing a horse that he was too small to ride. Convict labor got so profitable that entrepreneurs traded convict leases on a market. In 1898, 73% of Alabama's revenue came from convict leasing. By 1900, 23 to 30,000 African Americans were in convict lease camps. A quarter of them were children. In the book Slavery by Another Name, Douglas Blackman reports that thousands of the men arrested and put into convict labor camps were not violent criminals, but were guilty of petty charges and such violations as vagrancy or changing employers without permission or engaging in sexual activity or loud talk with white women. He calls the camps bulging slave centers and a primary weapon of suppression of black aspirations. Peonage was another device for re-enslaving African Americans, despite being outlawed in 1867. When someone convicted of a crime was unable to pay the fines and court fees, a local businessman would pay the fine for him, and then the convict would work for him until the debt was paid. And as mentioned earlier, despite the passage of the 15th Amendment, blacks were prevented from voting through legal and extra-legal means. In 1896, Louisiana had 130,334 registered black voters. Eight years later, only 1%, or 1,342, could meet the requirements that the state had imposed. As in other states, white citizens who could not pass the literacy or financial tests could still vote due to grandfather clauses. In Virginia, the rules set by the 1901-02 Constitutional Convention, enforced by democratically appointed registrars, had the effect of removing 125,000 of the 147,000 black voters in the state from the voter rolls in a period of 90 days. Democrats also resorted to fraud, stuffing ballots, and failing to count non-democratic votes, or just giving credit for votes cast to the wrong candidate. By 1904, 
Every former Confederate state had a poll tax. The $1 to $2 per year tax made voting practically impossible for the poor. Poll taxes in state elections would remain legal until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Literacy requirements disproportionately affected African Americans, who had a lower literacy rate. But regardless of whether they actually met the requirements, they were at the mercy of white registrars, who could deny them the ability to vote for any reason. The threat of lynching was another constant in the life of Southern Blacks. Between 1889 and 1929, an African American was hanged or burned alive every four days for killing horses or livestock, jumping labor contract, boastful remarks, insulting a white person, or trying to act like a white person. The 1892 murder of black store owner Tom Moss and two of his friends were a critical moment in the life of activist Ida B. Wells. Moss had been a close friend of Wells, and she began investigating lynching after their murders. She wrote, quote, I had accepted the idea that although lynching was contrary to law and order, unreasoning anger over the terrible crime of rape led to lynching, and that perhaps the mob was justified in taking his life. But then Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and Henry Stewart had been lynched in Memphis, and they had committed no crime against a white woman. This is what opened my eyes to what lynching really was, an excuse to get rid of Negroes who were acquiring wealth and property and thus keeping the race terrorized, and keep the down. The Morning News, a Savannah, Georgia newspaper, printed the following in January 1917. There is scarcely a Negro mother in the country who does not live in dread and fear that her husband or son may come in unfriendly contact with some white person so as to bring the lynchers or the arresting officers to her door, which may result in the wiping out of her entire family. It must be acknowledged that this is a sad condition. Victims were sometimes subjected to hours of torture before finally being killed, all before an audience that included women and children. This is the world that many African Americans are seeking to escape from when the following letters are written. Troy, Alabama, October 17, 1916. Dear Sirs, I am enclosing a clipping of a lynching again, which speaks for itself. I do wish there could be sufficient pressure brought about to have federal investigation of such work. I wrote you a few days ago if you could furnish me with the addresses of some firms or corporations that needed common labor. So many of our people here are almost starving. The government is feeding quite a number here, would go anywhere to better their conditions. If you can do anything for us, write me as early as possible. New Orleans, Louisiana, May 20th, 1917. Dear Sir, I am sure your time is precious for being as you are an editor of a newspaper such as the race has never owned and for which it must proudly boast of as being the peer in the periodical world. I am confident that yours is a force of busy men. I also feel sure that you will spare a small amount of your time to give some needed information to one who wishes to relieve himself of the burden of the South. I indeed wish very much to come north. Anywhere in Illinois will do, since I am away from the lynchman's noose and torchman's fire. Myself and a friend wish to come, but not without information regarding work and general surroundings. Now, Honorable Sir, if for any reason you are not in position to furnish us with the information desired, 
please do the act of kindness of placing us in touch with the organization whose business it is, I am told, to furnish said information. We are firemen, machinist helpers, practical painters, and general laborers, and most of all, ministers of the gospel, who are not afraid of labor, for it put us where we are. Please let me hear from you. Economic conditions were also very dire for many, though not all as we'll get to, many African Americans in the South. After the war, sharecropping grew to be a major component of the Southern economy. Under this system, a landowner gave a farmer, black or white, and his family a home and the necessary supplies to work the land. He'd also give the farmer credit at a local store to purchase food, clothing, and other necessities at 50 to 200 percent interest. The landowner often owned the store as well. At settlement, the farmer or sharecropper would receive a share of the revenue from the crop sales, less his debt from the store. The landlord kept the books, and the sharecroppers often found themselves owing the landlords. For challenging the landlord's word, a black farmer might be beaten, whipped, or even killed. Tenant farmers rented their plots of land and paid the landowners in cotton or cash. If the tenant failed to pay his rent, or even if the landowner said he owed money, the tenant could lose everything. Historian Carol Marx argues that because of the cost of migrating, it's not likely that many of the migrants had been farmers. But I've included sharecropping because it was such a big part of the Southern economy and speaks to the lack of economic opportunity. Other agricultural workers might earn 75 cents per day, though the majority did not receive wages and were paid in kind. For blacks who did not work on farms, wages in the South were about $1.25 to $3 a day for artisans, which was about three-quarters of Northern wages. Working-class women took jobs as maids, cooks, washerwomen, and nannies. Cooks made 4 to $10 a month, and nurses between $1.50 and $5 a month. Domestic workers left their own families as early as 4 in the morning and returned after their children were asleep, 6 to 7 days per week. Domestic work was difficult and poorly compensated, but in great demand as black women were hired by both uh, wealthy and poor white families. Steady work was much harder to find for black men, who often worked a wide variety of jobs to survive. One letter writer from Tennessee had many disparate jobs on his resume. Sir, seeing the wonderful opportunity that is being offered the colored man of the South by the Northern Industries and the aid in which your organization is giving them, it aroused within me the ambition that prompts every man to long for liberty. What I want to say is I am coming North and seeing your call for me thought I would write you and list a few things I can do and see if you can find a place for me anywhere north of the Mason and Dixon line, and I will present myself in person at your office as soon as I hear from you. I am now employed in the railroad shop in Memphis. I am an engine watchman, hostler, red cut man, pipe fitter, oil house man, shipping clerk, telephone lineman, freight caller, an expert soaking vat man, that is one who makes the dope for packing hot boxes on engines. I am capable of giving satisfaction in either of the above-named positions. I bought a Chicago Defender, and after reading it and seeing the golden opportunity, I have decided to leave this place at once. 
To make matters even worse, the boll weevil infestation started in Texas in 1898 and made its way through the South at a rate of about 40 to 160 miles per year. In Dallas County, Alabama, the crop went from 60,000 bales in 1914 to under five in 1916. After touring the region, federal attorney Alexander Pitts reported back, all of the surrounding counties are in the same condition, and since this country only raises cotton and corn, the Negroes have nothing to eat. The planters are not able to feed them, and they are emigrating. When a crop was wiped out, the plantation owner told the sharecroppers and the tenants to just to go find new homes. By the mid-1920s, boll weevil had entered all cotton-growing regions. One letter writer from Georgia described its effects. Fort Gaines, Georgia, October 9, 1916. Dear Sir, Replying to your letter dated October 6, the situation here is this. Heavy rains and boll weevil have caused a loss of about 9,000 bales of cotton, which together with seed at the prevailing high prices would have brought $900,000, the average crop here being 11,000 bales. But this year's crop was exceptionally fine and abundant and promised good yield until the two calamities hit us. Now the farmer is going to see that his personal losses are minimized as far as possible and this has left the average farm laborer with nothing to start out with to make a crop for next year. Nobody wants to carry him till next fall. He might make peanuts and might not. So taking it all around, he wants to migrate to where he can see a chance to get work. I have carpenters, one brick mason, blacksmith, etc., wanting to leave here. Can send you their names if a definite proposition is held out. This is not to say that life was a bed of roses for every white person in the South. But they did not, for example, have to worry about lynching and other violence. Blacks were at the bottom of every ladder of society and were disproportionately arrested, prosecuted, and incarcerated. Events and conditions that affected the whole Southern economy affected blacks disproportionately. Blacks who initially held good positions were the first to lose their jobs in the worsening labor market. Laws were passed to prohibit blacks from skilled railroad jobs and service jobs that should first go to unemployed whites. As jobs became more and more scarce, blacks were pushed even out of jobs that had previously been written off as, quote, Negro work. In early 1917, relief workers who traveled to the region reported, quote, hundreds of hungry, half-naked, barefooted poor Negroes huddled on the frozen ground. But even though economic conditions were very dire for the majority of blacks in the South, this was not the universal story. There were many bright spots in education. Despite disparities in funding and other resources, some black students were able to attend secondary and post-secondary institutions, offering education that rivaled the quality offered at white schools. Churches, black and white, contributed to support black schools. Churches also taught children to read, write, and spell in their Sabbath schools. Local communities held fundraisers, and they also received aid from northern missionaries and philanthropists. One elderly lady sent in 18 cents that she had saved from her laundry earnings to support the local school. One teacher wrote in her diary that her grandmother had donated a chicken to support the school, her aunt a pound of butter and a dime, 
Another woman donated a cake and five cents, and Bessie Harvey supported the school by donating a dress. When the Augusta Institute opened in Georgia in 1867, its purpose was to train former slaves to be teachers and ministers. The all-male school was renamed Morehouse College in 1913. It would eventually produce five Rhodes Scholars, as well as several Fulbright Scholars, and its many notable alumni include Nobel Peace Prize laureate and civil rights leader Martin Luther King, Jr. In 1867, Congress chartered Howard in Washington, D.C. as a university. Its law school was founded in 1872, and Charlotte Ray, a graduate of the school, was the first woman admitted to the D.C. bar. Incidentally, if you Google Charlotte Ray, you'll get many pictures of Marian Anderson. And at least one source, I found, said that Charlotte Ray was a white woman. But all sources agree that she went to Howard, and she was a pioneer in the practice of law. Tuskegee University was the original vision of Lewis Adams, a community leader and former slave who, though he had no formal education, could read and write, and understood the value of education for other former slaves. When Alabama Senate candidate and former Confederate Colonel W.F. Foster offered Adams some favor in exchange for help securing the black vote, Adams asked that a school be built for African Americans. In 1880, the legislature appropriated $2,000 for teachers' salaries. Booker T. Washington was the first principal of Tuskegee, which held its first classes in an outbuilding, a shanty belonging to the Butler Chapel AME Zion Church. Before that, he had been a teacher at another HBCU, Hampton in Virginia. It was former slaveholder George Campbell who wrote to an acquaintance at Hampton asking for the recommendation of a principal for the, for the Tuskegee School. Washington placed a high value on practical knowledge and required all students to do some form of labor. It was students who built the school's first proper buildings using bricks from a kiln that the students had built. In 1901, Charlotte Hawkins Brown moved from her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts to rural North Carolina to teach at the Bethany Institute. The school was funded by the American Missionary Association. According to Brown's description, the Institute was actually an unpainted and weather-beaten structure with holes for windows, surrounded by an unkempt yard. The students, many of whom could be spared from farm work only during the winter months, walked up to 15 miles per day to the school. Hawkins cleaned up the school and adjacent buildings, turning one of them into a dormitory. When the AMA withdrew its funding and offered Hawkins a position at another school, the parents begged her to stay. After returning briefly to New England to raise funds for the school, she went back to North Carolina and became the first black woman to open a normal school in the state. By the way, normal is the term for a teacher training school. Hawkins continued to solicit donations, emphasizing the practical aspects of the education to be more appealing to white donors. Meanwhile, the students also learned subjects such as French, Latin, literature, arithmetic, and history. This is only a partial list of the many HBCUs and other educational institutions that were founded during Reconstruction and in the decades following. There were also pockets of black prosperity throughout the South in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Financial hubs that were later dubbed Black Wall Streets developed in Oklahoma, North Carolina, and Virginia. They offered refuge from the indignities of Jim Crow, where, as W.E.B. Du Bois proclaimed, Today there is a singular group in Durham 
where a black man may get up in the morning from a mattress made by a black man, in a house which a black man built, out of lumber which black man cut and planed. He may put on a suit he bought at a colored haberdashery, and socks knit at a colored mill. He may cook victuals from a colored grocery on a stove which black men fashioned. He may earn his living working for colored men, be sick in a colored hospital, and buried in a colored church. And the Negro Insurance Society will pay his widow enough to keep his children in school. This is surely progress. He was describing the town of Haiti, H-A-Y-T-I, in Durham, North Carolina, which was the first black community to become fully self-sufficient. Some of the earliest residents were freedmen who came to Durham to work in tobacco warehouses after the Civil War. The local hospital, Lincoln Hospital, was staffed by black doctors and nurses, and the town also had a theater, a library, hotels, and over 200 other businesses. In 1910, North Carolina Central University was founded in Haiti, and 15 years later, it became the first liberal arts HBCU to receive state funding. Haiti was also the home of North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, which became the richest black-owned company of the period. It was founded by John Merrick and continues to operate with $162 million in assets. Boley, Oklahoma, was founded in 1903 on land owned by Abigail Burnett McCormick, who inherited it from her father, a Creek freedman. It eventually became one of the wealthiest black towns in the country. At one point, it had five grocery stores, five hotels, a jewelry store, and two insurance companies. It also had two colleges and its own water system and electrical plant. The town of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was created by O.W. Gurley, a wealthy black landowner from, Ar from Arkansas. The town was home to doctors, lawyers, and business owners, and Greenwood Avenue was home to restaurants, hotels, furriers, and a Ford Model T taxi service. However, the town was destroyed by riots in 1921. White mobs torched it after an alleged assault on a white elevator operator by a black shoeshiner. 300 African Americans were murdered in the riot. Alabama's Sweet Auburn District was home to the second largest black insurance company in the United States. It was founded in 1905 by Alonzo Herndon, a former slave from Walton, Georgia, who would become Atlanta's first black millionaire. By 1910, the bank had 42 branches. It may not have been called a black Wall Street, but Auburn Avenue has been called the richest Negro street in the world. Jackson Ward in Richmond, Virginia, was home to the first bank founded by a black woman in the United States. Maggie Lena Walker opened the St. Luke Penny Savings Bank in 1903. When she bought her Jackson Ward home in 1904, she added central heating, electricity, and enclosed porches. She also increased the size of the home from 9 to 28 rooms, and she purchased an electric car in 1910. As a teen, Walker had joined the local council of the Independent Order of St. Luke, which helped the sick and aged and promoted humanitarian causes. Middle-class black women all over the South performed charity work for the poor, widowed, and elderly through missionary societies and benevolent associations. They also held poetry readings and attended the theater and classical music concerts. Men formed baseball teams and volunteer fire companies. In the early years of the 20th century, Men and women formed Greek letter organizations like Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity, 
which was founded at Howard in 1911. The Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority was started by Ethel Hedgeman Lyle in 1908, also at Howard. Five years later, the Delta Sigma Theta sorority was founded, and Phi Beta Sigma fraternity was founded in 1914. There are currently nine such organizations, but I've only mentioned the ones that were founded in the South before the migration. Across the class spectrum, the church played a major role in black life. In addition to spiritual support, congregants received social services from houses of worship. As we already talked about, churches were educational institutions as well. The minister was one of the most, if not the most, influential member of the community. As the migration got going, ministers would be among the voices urging blacks to stay, but eventually many would follow their congregations north. On the next episode, we will talk about the conditions in the north that drew so many blacks from the region that had been their home for generations. The letters by the prospective migrants were taken from the Journal of Negro History, which is in the public domain and available at gutenberg.org. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com. You'll also find a link to the Pinterest page, which has images related to today's episode. Please like American Epistles on Facebook or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you for listening.